Thank you so much, Dalton. I asked Dalton if I could uh, share this with you. If you didn't know that Dalton has accepted a youth ministry position at Central Church in Tuscaloosa, and I believe is to, to begin two weeks from today. So we're proud of Dalton and, and bid him Godspeed in that, that work. Just remember where home is. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> if you will, look with me to Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10. As you look up this passage uh, and you begin reading in this text, you'll see a long list of names. And uh, the temptation is to uh, skim through those, and which I will do, but I want to tell you why they're there, why they're present. In fact, it made me think about July 4th, 1776, when 56 of our, uh, what are we call founding fathers of our nation, signed their names to the Declaration of Independence. A momentous occasion, historic occasion for our country, uh, declaring independence from, from Great Britain. And those who signed their names, 56 people, I remember John Hancock, particularly with his larger signature, they were letting their names be recorded and uh, showing all that they were fully in support of this, of this declaration. There's a signing that takes place in Nehemiah chapter 10. And I think this is also a historic occasion for the people of God under the, under the Old Covenant. If you'll remember, we studied in Nehemiah chapter 8, where after the wall of, around Jerusalem was rebuilt, that was Nehemiah's, uh, that was his, one of his primary goals, but not his only goal. Because not only did the wall need to be rebuilt, the people of God needed to be rebuilt. And that couldn't happen without the book of the law, the law of God. So Nehemiah chapter 8, the law is read. The people stand up, they hear, and they commit themselves to obeying. In fact, um, and, and now in chapter 10, they're signing a declaration or an agreement that they're going to, to keep the law of God. The last verse of Nehemiah 9 tells us what's about to happen in chapter 10. Now, because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. And so, chapter 10, beginning of verse 1, <coughs> is a long list of names. Those who put their seal, wrote their names on this document, ratifying it, and, and indicating their, their intent, their promise uh, to keep the law of God. So Nehemiah chapter 10 contains the names of those who signed it, and it details what they were agreeing uh, to as well. So let's look, um, not too closely, but generally at the names written on this agreement. You'll find, beginning with verse 1, the governor, Nehemiah. Now on the sealed document were the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah, and I'll not read the next 21 names, but they are described in the end of verse 8 as the priests. So Nehemiah the governor and Zedekiah, who may have been Nehemiah's secretary or another official in a government official, and the priests. So here are the leaders of, of Israel signing their names, saying we are committing ourselves to this. 
Next is the Levites, beginning with verse 9, verses 9 through 13. And it appears that the names, these are, these are names of individuals, not of families, that are written, recorded here. The Levites, as you'll recall, were the tribe that was set aside to, for the service of the temple. The temple has been rebuilt as well. So the Levites are signing their names. We're going to keep our part of this agreement. And then in verses 14 through 27, there are the, what are called the leaders. These are apparently the heads of the families. Forty-four men are named, including many family names. So the leaders of families are also, they started at the top with Nehemiah the governor and included the signature of a lot of the leaders, even of the heads of families. So they're showing their commitment on behalf of all the people to obey the law of God that had been neglected. In fact, the law of God that had been disobeyed that had caused their ancestors to be taken into captivity. Now they're back. Now Jerusalem has been rebuilt, including the wall. And they're, they're signing this declaration that we will be obedient to the law of God. So the whole community is represented by those signing this document. Nehemiah the governor, the priests, the Levites, and the heads of the family. In verses 28 through 39, the stipulations of, of the, this rededication covenant are, are spelled out. And some have suggested that this is probably the word for word, the document that they were signing. So after the list of signers, the stipulations of the agreement are set forth. And notice with me verse 28, verse 28. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding, are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. An oath de declaring their promise to keep the law of God, but calling upon themselves a curse from God if they fail to do so. To walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to comply with all the, with all the commandments of God, our Lord, and his ordinances and statutes. This commitment can be compared to Israel's original response, the original dedication, as we're calling this, the rededication. The original dedication was stated like this by the people. Exodus 19, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But their forefathers had broken that commitment. And so now they're rededicating themselves to keeping the law of God. I want to go through some of the things that are included here. They're, commit they're committing themselves to keep the covenant, including that they will have no marriages with foreign people. No marriages with foreign people. Verse 30, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. This was forbidden 
on religious grounds, not racial grounds. Religious grounds. Because it was known. In fact, think about King Solomon with me. You remember God instructed him not to marry, I like the King James wording, not to marry strange women. The idea is foreign women. Lest they turn your heart away from God. But Solomon disregarded this and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And just as God had warned, his wives turned away his heart. His wives turned away his heart after other gods. So that the Lord became angry with Solomon and told him that he was going to take the kingdom away from him. But not during his reign, but in the reign of of his son. I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to, to your servant. So just as Solomon had been instructed and warned by God not to marry, intermarry with foreign women, lest they turn his heart to, into idolatry, even so, that was stipulated in the covenant, in the law of God. And they're recommitting themselves not to disobey that. Also, verse 31, they agreed to no buying and selling on the Sabbath. You remember the Sabbath as it was given in the old law? That they were to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And they were to do no work on the Sabbath. Well, what apparently was happening, there were people, they were coming in to their land and selling their wares. And and so there was that exchange. And so that was a violation of the Sabbath. So... They agreed not to bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell. And they wouldn't buy such when it was brought in. Verse 31, they also agree, commit to observing the obligations of the seventh year. The seventh year. And those are enumerated for us. We will forego the crops the seventh year. Every seventh year they were allowed the crops to lie fallow. And, the, and they were also to... Uh, forgive the debts of their fellow Jews after seven years. They agreed to do this again. Verses 32 through 39 all have to do with supporting the temple. Supporting the temple. That would include their agreement, they're signing the dotted line, if you will, to pay the annual temple tax, one-third of a shekel, according to verse 32 and 33. Likewise, Uh, We read in verse 34 that they cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites, and the people. I know these are a lot of details, but stay with me because I think there's a great application to be made. It's interesting that the law actually made no provision for the supply of wood for the altar that was to be perpetually burning. So, But, well, here's an application Everybody's business is nobody's business. So expecting it just to happen, uh, they decided to, to cast lots and decide who was going to bring the wood that would be for, for the altar. They agreed to bring the first fruits of the ground and the trees and the firstborn of sons, cattle, herds, and flocks, just like the law specified, to, to the temple. And for the Levites and the priests. Notice they were to bring the firstborn of their sons. But the law also stipulated that the people could ransom their firstborn by paying a certain amount to the priests. They agreed and signed the document 
that they would, continue, they would give a tithe, a tenth of everything that they earned, and that a tenth of the tithes would be given to the priests to support them in their work. Verse 39 summarizes it. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, the oil to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers and the singers. So there's the document. There is the, the recommitment that we're going to observe. Uh, we're going to observe the law of God with a lot of emphasis on the temple. Why was there so much emphasis on the temple? I think it had to do with the Jews' identity, their identity. They could be identified as the unique people of God in two ways. Number one, they're living in the holy land that God had promised to their ancestors. But number two, they had the temple of God. And that was uh, depicted to be where God's very presence could be found in the temple of God. And so there's a lot of instruction in the old law about taking care of the temple and the Levites and the priests. All of their duties are outlined. And now they're recommitting to keeping the law of God. And I want to zoom in on the last verse as we make application. The last verse, the last part of verse 39 of Nehemiah 10. Thus, we will not neglect the house of our God. Thus, we will not neglect the house of our God. Contextually, it's referring to the temple. We're not going to neglect the temple like we have in the past. So they are making this vow, this rededication to being obedient to the law of God. And here's where I would like to make application for you and for me today let's also not neglect the temple of God and when I say that I'm not referring as you know to this church building this church building requires maintenance and so forth but that's not the focus tonight because in the New Testament the temple of God we find is is the church Here's a text that indicates that. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 through 17 says this. Do you not know that you are a temple of God? And you is plural there, speaking of the Christians in Corinth. You are a temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So Paul, writing to these Christians at Corinth, says, you're the temple of God. You're the holy habitation of God. And if anyone seeks to destroy the temple of God, God will destroy him. That's how God feels about the church and how we need to also commit not to neglect the temple of God. So don't neglect the temple of God. It's the same thing as saying, don't neglect the church of our Lord. You cannot separate Christ and the church. Some try to do that. Some say, well, I'll follow Jesus, but the church is just a sideline. It's not, not important. Of course, immediately when I hear statements such as that, I think about 
Acts 20 and verse 28, where Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. Would he, would he shed his blood for something that, that wasn't important? But also this truth is spelled out in Scripture. You cannot separate Christ and the church. Let me give you an example. Saul was on the road to Damascus. And Jesus appeared to him in a bright light, blinding him. And in this bright light, Saul hears this voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asks. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Who was Saul persecuting? He's persecuting Christians. He viewed Christ as an imposter. He viewed Christians as being duped. And so he's, he's trying to just dispel the world of the name of Christ and, and, and find those who are professing to follow Jesus and, and try to get them to blaspheme and even consent to their deaths. But when Jesus confronts him, he asks, why are you persecuting me? And so the, the truth is, by persecuting Christians, Saul was persecuting the church. You cannot separate Christ and the church. When we speak badly of the church, we're speaking badly of Christ. When we neglect the church, we're neglecting Christ. On the other hand, when we honor the church, when we support the work of the church, we're honoring Christ and supporting the, the cause of Christ. So you cannot separate Christ and the church. So don't neglect the church, and I'll give you two reasons why we would never want to do that. Number one is because the church is the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, all are texts that, te- that compare the body of Christ, well, that liken the body of Christ to the church. The church is the body of Christ. I want to read with you Ephesians, the Ephesians 4 passage. Uh, there's something I want to underscore here. So notice what Paul says to these Christians at Ephesus. He, Jesus, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. For, for what reason? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. What's the body of Christ? The church. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What Paul is speaking of there is maturity. As a result, verse 14, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of people, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him, Christ, who is head, that is, Christ. From whom, from Christ, the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So Paul's instruction is is, uh, using that idea of the church is the body of Christ. 
He gave some to be leaders to equip the, the saints for the work of ministry. And the idea is that, that every saint is involved in the ministry and uses the, the talents that God has given for the building up the, of the church to maturity and, and to everything that God wants the church to be. Again, it is underscored many times in the New Testament. The church is the body of Christ. Therefore, every member, every Christian is a member of the body of Christ. So we don't want to neglect the church because the church is the body of Christ. It's his presence here on earth. I love the poem by Annie Johnson Flint. Christ has no hands but our hands to do his work today. He has no feet but our feet to lead men in the way. He has no tongue but our tongue to tell men how he died. He has no help but our help to bring them to his side. We are the only Bible the careless world will read. We are the sinner's gospel. We are the scoffer's creed. We are the Lord's last message given in word and deed. What if the type is crooked? What if the print is blurred? What if our hands are busy with other work than his? What if our feet are walking where sin's allurement is? What if our tongue is speaking of things his lips would spurn? How can we hope to help him or welcome his return? We are his hands, his feet, his mouths. We are the body of Christ. And God's will is that every Christian be a functioning member of the body of Christ. So if we're going to replicate what they're doing in Nehemiah chapter 10, here's a, here's a line, a statement of commitment. I will be a functioning member of the body of Christ. I will be a functioning member of the body of Christ. Would you sign your name? Will you sign your name? That's what they're doing, Nehemiah chapter 10. They've neglected the law of God. They're committing themselves even to the stipulations that are spelled out there. We're going to do this, and we're signing our name to it. And one of those commitments was we're not going to neglect the house of God, the temple of God. And that commitment needs to be communicated even today. That we as God's people are not going to neglect the temple of God, the church. Because the church is the body of Christ. Each of us has a function. Will we commit to completing that? A second reason why we should never want to neglect the temple of God, the church, is because the church is the family, the family of God. Whenever I think about the church as the family of God, there's many things that come to my mind. But one thing is the one another commands in Scripture. How many one another commands are there in Scripture? I found this graphic that lists several, several of them. Forgive one another, encourage one another, um, accept one another, love one another. It's found some 15 times from Matthew to Revelation. Um, Repetition is a key to learning. Apparently, we were to learn that. There's one writer that counted 59 one another statements 
from Matthew to Revelation 59. And I have that list in my notes here. I won't go through all of it. You're welcome. But 59 statements that have to do with our relationship with one another within the family of God. In fact, one writer said the primary activity of the church was one anothering one another. Don't ask me to say that fast five times. But that's, that's it, isn't it? That by God's design, when we obey the gospel and we're added to the family, we have all these blessings that come with that. But we also have responsibility to commit ourselves to one anothering in all the ways that are found in Scripture. So let's replicate Nehemiah chapter 10. Here's a positive statement. I will practice the one anothering commands in the New Testament. Would you sign your name? Would you commit to doing that? And I see it happening so often here. When we're doing the one anothering that we should. When, when some of our members are going through a difficult time, I see church family members responding Helping one another, serving one another, praying for one another, and all those other one another statements that we find. But it doesn't happen by accident. And quite frankly, it requires more than just sitting together in the auditorium. It requires one anothering outside these walls, where we're living, where we're hurting, where we need one another. So the last verse of this chapter, Nehemiah 10, has this vow. Thus we will not neglect the house of our God. One more statement that I'm asking us to commit or recommit to. I will not neglect the temple of God, the church. Will you sign the dotted line? Will you commit your life to doing that? Because the temple of God, the church, is too important to neglect. And it requires all of us committing to being what God has called us to be. Are you a member of the body of Christ, the family of God? If you're ready to obey the gospel tonight, we'd love to baptize you into Christ so that you can experience the new birth and be added to the family of God. With all the blessings and responsibilities found Found therein. One of the reasons we have a family by God's design is when we are struggling, that we have other family members within God's family, other members of the body of Christ to help us. We can help you tonight through our prayers or any burden that you're carrying tonight that you want us to be aware of that we can help you with. We ask that you will let that be known as together we stand and sing.